You probably know where we are in the scripture. If you've been here, we're again in the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll open your copy of Holy Writ to chapter 5 of Matthew, as we prepare to uh, hear the living word of the living God for this Sunday morning. Matthew chapter 5, and we begin today in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The subject matter this morning is no place for hate. No place for hate. Ramon Narvaez, Prime Minister of Spain in the 19th century, lay dying. He was asked by his priest, does your excellency forgive all your enemies? The dying prime minister replied, I do not forgive my enemies. I have them all shot. That is an extreme case of hating one's enemies. But whether it's extreme or not to that level of extremity, hatred for one's enemies has no place in the life of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will have enemies, of course, um, that you can't avoid going through life. You'll have people who will be hostile to you, people with whom you will be estranged. And that's par for the course in this fallen world. That will happen. That's inevitable. You can't avoid that unless you go to heaven. But our Lord gives us a mandate as to how to treat our enemies. He really directly speaks to those of us who are beatitude people. People who have been favored by God. Remember when we looked at it, said, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Those are the people who are fortunate, who are blissful. Those are people who have been blessed by God. His favor rests upon them. We are the ones in the kingdom. We have salvation. And because of that reality, our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5, verse 20. The Pharisees, their righteousness was all on the outside. There's no reality on the inside. They, and they further subscribed to the position of hating one's enemies. Get that. Religious people with a cloak of religiosity will walk around pretending to be or thinking they are better than others. They are the righteous ones, but yet they are the ones who hate their enemies. In this portion of the sermon, Jesus transitions from the topic of righteousness exhibited by non-retaliation to the theme of loving, as you know, one's enemies. And that love is to be, here's our first heading, 
ex- an exclusive love. In verse 43, you have heard that it was said. The rabbinic and popular interpretation of the Old Testament permitted Jews to exclude their enemies from the people they were to love. Jesus quotes the first part of Leviticus 19.18 here in verse 43. You shall love your neighbor. Now the rest of the verse, verse 43, and hate your enemies, was thought to by those misinterpreters, misappliers of Leviticus 19.18 to be the demand. It was the inverse. If you love your neighbor, then you're supposed to love, hate your enemies. But the reality is nowhere in the Old Testament is it taught that we are to personally hate our enemies. Right? Not to do that. In fact, in Leviticus 19, the that passage, I quote, I'm going to turn there. If you'd like to go there with me, you may. Or not just listen, I read Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18 say this. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. That is by hating them. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love our enemies. Another reality is taught in the Old Testament that contradicts the notion that somehow you, in loving your neighbor, you're to hate your enemies. Uh, there is Exodus chapter 23. Love in action. Love in action. Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. You get that? Because you know what the natural human impulse is. Aha! That's my enemy's donkey. My enemy's whatever. And this is my chance. You know, I don't like that rascal, and I'm going to make sure he doesn't get his donkey or whatever the possession is back. It's not what the text says. You shall surely return it to him. See, if if you see the donkey, verse 5, of one who, here it is, hates you, lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Not to walk away. That's what the Old Testament actually taught. That is to be the response to one's enemies, to the one who hates you or the one that you perhaps want to hate. The Old Testament says otherwise. In fact, when you look back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus continues after Uh, what he states in verse 43 he says in verse 44 of Matthew 5 but I say to you by his own authority Jesus then says this love your enemies in fact that's a command the grammar of the phrase love your enemies conveys that we are to keep on loving our enemies it is not to be a one-off A one-time deal. I helped him with the donkey, but I'm not doing anything else for him. 
No, it is to be uh, the characteristic of our life. It is to be habitual that we love our enemies. That's what Jesus demands by the command. Now, as I alluded to a moment ago, we all know that it is natural to hate one's enemies and to love those who love us in return. But Jesus is not talking about natural love here. The love that comes to us naturally will inevitably mean that we will just requite love that has been extended to us. But our Lord here is talking about a different kind of love, a transcendent love. He is talking about supernatural love. A love that comes from God. A love that is not of this world, not of this earth. A love that cannot be reproduced. A love that only can come from Him. He enables us to love in a way that is uncharacteristic of the world's people. We have a new heart. If you're a child of God, you have a new heart. If you're a child of God, you have a new spirit. You've been born from above. You've been born again. Therefore, you can now love this way. If you want to know what love looks like, let me tell you something about love. You can look. Now, don't turn it. Just listen. Mark it down. Write it down somewhere and later look at it. 1 Corinthians 13. I believe there are 15 characteristics of love. How love behaves. It acts. And the way it acts toward other people. It's love. In fact, you think about this love that we sang about a minute ago here that's epitomized by the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that love that he exhibited. Think about the love of the Father in sending the Son. That love, he did that for us. He did for us what we needed. He made the supreme sacrifice of himself for our spiritual welfare. The word, the song included the word wretch. That's what we are, wretches. Undeserving. Of course we don't deserve it. Your enemy doesn't deserve it. But that is not the predicate upon which you do your actions toward your enemy. They don't earn it. But Jesus commands it. In our love, we're to seek the welfare of those who are our enemies. We are to include them in our love. Moreover, Jesus goes on to say here in verse 44, and pray. So we're pray. We're to pray for those who persecute us. This persecution from, is from the devil's children. They hate God, they hate Christ, they hate the word of God. And guess what? Because you belong to God, because you belong to Christ, because you're in the kingdom of God, they hate you. Jesus already told us this back in uh, verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Your alignment with Christ, your following Christ, your loving Christ in his word, your righteous and your practical living. Guess what? They hate you because of that, because they hate the God whom you know, love and serve. They can't get to him, but their nearest target is you. <laughs> 
And what does Jesus tell us to do about them? There's that word, pray. I know what you're going to do. You're going to retreat. Those of you who know the Old Testament, I'm going to pray for them, all right. I'm going to pray an imprecatory prayer. Remember that? Oh, God, I'm praying that you bring hell down upon them. Imprecatory prayer. I mean, David prayed that way. Other righteous people prayed imprecatory prayer, asking God to curse them. And you say, oh, that's what I think Jesus must mean. Pray for your enemies. Pray that he curses them, right? Let me just add something here. An imprecatory prayers in the Old Testament is a prayer that God's holiness and righteousness would be vindicated. It was never personal vendetta. You see, the enemies of the kingdom, and David and others pray that because of those enemies, what they were doing to the kingdom, that God would deal with them justly. It wasn't a personal matter, personal animosity against them. And what Jesus here is saying for our personal enemies, we are to pray for them. We're to intercede before God for them. We are to go to the throne of grace, bringing them before the Father and entreating him to grant them salvation. That's what they need. Think about it. They persecute you because you belong to Christ. What do you think they need? They need Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he lived uh, in Germany during the Nazi regime. And he wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, these words. This is the supreme demand Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. End of quote. Boy, that's how you deal with your enemies. This man said this while he's living in Nazi Germany. This is discipleship. This is what it means to be a learner and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our prayer life will include seeking the spiritual blessing of salvation for the enemies of God and Christ. Those who persecute us, we'll have them on our prayer list. If you're on your knees, in your closet, however you pray, the posture is irrelevant. You're praying for them because you know their need. Yes, it's emotional. Yes, it's difficult. Ask God to help you with the emotion that's involved. But also, by the grace of God, you'll be able to obey the word of God from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ and pray for them. They, they persecute you because you belong to Christ. The text is teaching us. But you need to understand something. They're God's enemies. And so were we at one time. You always have to keep that in mind. You haven't always been God's friend. Walking with him, loving and adoring him. You were his enemy at one point. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were sinners we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, 
much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I'm going to pull out of that for this brief moment. We're reconciled to God from enmity to amity, from hostility to friendship, accomplished by the death of God's Son. He died for his enemies. <laughs> when Jesus um, taught this, he knew the cross was ahead of him. He's going to die for his enemies. So we were once in the place and position of our enemies. We're to pray for them. Let me also, I think it's important to add here as a note of help to us. Sometimes enemies can be those in the body of Christ. Um, They can act in a fleshly manner. They can act evilly toward us, toward you. What do you do for them? Love them and pray for them. Pray for their sanctification. The reason people behave that way is because they haven't grown enough in Christ. Pray that God will sanctify them. Make them holier. Change them from the way they are to the way he wants them to be. In Luke's um, gospel parallel account, What's uh, interesting here is Jesus teaches it again. In verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. Additional truth for us to digest. It says here in verse 27 of Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's the response. That's inclusive love. That's how we're to deal with our enemies. That's the biblical way. That is the Christian way. That's the beatitude way. That's the way of Christ how we're to live now verse 45 in Matthew chapter 5 we're going to put this heading emulative love emulative love we're going to emulate someone verse 45 so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven let's stop there to semicolon for a moment Reading our Lord's words here seem to indicate that we love and pray for our enemies so that we may become sons of God. That's what it seems to be saying in the first line of the, this verse. But that's not the meaning. We're already his children. We're already in the kingdom. We learned that earlier, earlier in Matthew chapter 5, 3. We're in the kingdom of heaven. So that can't be the case. Further, you see the phrase, your father who is in heaven, the status of sonship is implied by that statement. We are 
the sons of our father because he is in heaven and we're his children. We are his father. He is our father. We're his children. So it is not saying that you love your enemies to become um, a son of God. You cannot earn a merit sonship. You cannot earn a merit your way into the kingdom, right? So the idea here, so that we put those two words together, the behavior speaks of the characteristic of sonship, not the status. The characteristic of sonship. You want to know what sonship looks like in terms of enemies? They love and pray for them. It's what it looks like. We treat our enemies lovingly. Because we bear the resemblance of our father. That's emulative love. We emulate him. You know the old saying like father like son. Or the other one, chip off the old block. Daughter's spitting image of her mother. There is a family resemblance. If we're his children, we'll reflect his character. And his character is, he, he loves those who are his enemies. That's what it says here. In verse 45, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's how the father treats them. You'll notice something here in this text. Jesus calls the son his son. He does that because the father controls the cosmos. Including the son because he created it. And the reason even unbelievers have the benefit of the son is because the father who controls it gives them sunshine. He causes the sun to rise. On even the evil and the unrighteous. By the way, let me just throw this in here that that. Those words, sun to rise. Don't, don't look at the Bible and say, oh my goodness. Everybody knows the sun doesn't rise. <laughs> Please. We live in a scientific age and we know better. I, I mean, I've taken those classes. Well, we know the sun doesn't rise. So does your meteorologist. And they know science, don't they? Haven't you noticed something about them? They're always, when they're giving the weather report, they'll let us know the hour of the sunrise and the sunset. They don't say, well, you know, it doesn't. That's the language of appearance. That's what it means. It appears that way. And Jesus used that because that's the way it appeared. Now, he could have explained all of the meteorological stuff, but nobody had understood. Here's the creator. <laughs> he put the sun there. He knows how it works. Because he made it to work that way. But he wasn't going to explain all that to them. And they'd have been saying, what? <laughs> he was making a point about the father. The father sends the rain. He controls when it falls and where it falls. There have been people who have recognized that. Um, they, they pray for rain, don't they? When there's drought, they start saying, oh, pray. It's a funny thing. People get desperate and they realize God does it. So they say, oh, we got to ask God. Let's pray. Even reprobates will do that. <laughs> 
But what our Lord's point is here in verse 45 is that the Father is indiscriminate in bestowing his blessings on people, even the evil and the good. It's called common grace by the theologians. It's common to man. It's the benefits that come from God to all men indiscriminately. That's what he does. God is like that. I think again um, in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus again uh, expounds on this goodness of our God. He says in verse 35, but love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You see that? Ungrateful men, they don't thank him. God meets their needs, but they don't say, thank you, God. I know it's from you. They don't do that. They just take the gifts and go. They don't give him the time of day. He's merciful. Verse 36. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Oh, praise God for his mercy, right? Hmm. We're to emulate him. Emulate him. An atheist in a small town wrote to the editor of the local paper one fall these words, quote, I have conducted an experiment. I have a field by the Baptist church. When the Baptists came to worship, I plowed it, his field. I planted it on a Wednesday night when they were at prayer meeting. And I brought in the harvest while they were having a revival meeting. But I want to report that my field produced as much as any other field I have. Planted it next to the church. Everything went well. The editor of the local paper uh, printed a reply and added this comment. What the reader doesn't understand is that God does not settle accounts in October. <laughs> Harvest time. It's right. Many unbelievers fail to take into account that God's benevolence to them is dis- That's why he is forbearing. That's why he hasn't struck them down already. He is giving them time to repent. That's why his sinners still live. That's why they keep living and some of them just keep on living. They just keep on living. It's because God is giving them time to repent. Romans 2 verse 4. But I want you to know, clearly, there's a day of reckoning coming. They will give an account, just like the editor of that paper wrote. God will settle accounts. People have to give an account to him who have rejected Jesus Christ and, and, and all the sins that flowed like an undammed river from them. They will give an account for. Leave that to God. He will judge them in his own time. That's not for us to do. 
what we're to do is we're to treat them as our Father treats them now. That's our responsibility. We'll receive reward for it. Remember earlier in this text here, it talks about rewards or we'll talk about reward. That's coming. What we do, we treat them the way the Father wants us to treat them, and thereby we glorify our Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. So there is inclusive love, there is emulative love, then there is extraordinary love. Verse 46 of Matthew chapter 5. For if you love those who love you, <laughs> what reward do you have? Ordinary natural love, the love practiced by the world, is self-serving. It is pragmatic. People in the world, they love those who love them back. See, you get something out of it. It is not self-giving. It is self-serving. If we love like that, we will obtain, notice it says, no reward. The reward here, I believe it is a reference to heavenly reward. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. God rewards us as we love the way he commands us to love. He notes that. He sees how we love our enemies or not. And as we love our enemies, we do what he says, love them and pray for them, and we treat them the way he, he treats them, we emulate him, he notes it and he'll reward us for that in eternity. It will not go unnoticed by the all-seeing eye of Almighty God. You can't lose. Because the Lord will repay you. You notice here, second question our Lord asks in this verse, verse 46, do not even the tax collectors do the same Tax collectors were despised by the Jews. Of course, you know that because uh, they collected taxes for the Romans, the despised overlords of the Jewish nation, and they hated having to give their money to the Romans, the world power at the time. And those tax collectors, they got wealthy. They were well-heeled guys, or shall we say well-sandaled. <laughs> In fact, they called them licensed robbers. <laughs> our Lord's words here were a stinging rebuke to the self-righteous Jews including the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they were above the uh, tax collectors they were doing the same thing they loved for themselves what they could get out of it tax collectors love was inspired by schemes to get ahead Self-centered, not self-giving. Jesus goes on to give another example. He says in verse 47, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Greetings in the ancient Greek and Jewish world uh, was typically expressed by some kind of blessing. The Jews would say, you've heard this, Shalom meaning peace, well-being that comes from divine favor. This would greet, they would do this. They would say to their brothers, they met them, shalom. And he would say back, shalom. May you have well-being, may you have prosperity, may God's favor rest upon you, my brother. Shalom. 
But when they met their enemy, they didn't say shalom. They didn't say anything. They wouldn't pronounce a blessing upon their enemies. You'll notice in verse 47, there's the word more. It renders a Greek term that carries the meanings of extraordinary. Another meaning, surpassing the normal standard. If you greet only your brothers, what is extraordinary about that? What is surpassing the normal about that? You're just doing the ordinary. There's nothing supernatural about that. There's nothing otherworldly about that. Nothing from God about that. Notice in the text, do not even Gentiles do the same. Gentiles, uh, more than just ethnic designation, it is also a reality of the fact that they're pagans. Pagans do that. So if you, you're greeting and, and there's no more than that to your brothers, you're not doing any better than some sinner. Jesus' words, not mine. Amen. You see, it was socially acceptable to withhold such greetings from one's enemies. Just let's just know this. Such behavior is unworthy of Jesus' disciples. You see, we don't act like the world. Just because something's socially acceptable doesn't make it right for us. We don't follow the drumbeat of the world. We follow the word of Christ. Our conduct is motivated, motivated by supernatural love. It'll be extraordinary. You'll stand out. Because you don't act like everybody else. And when they ask you why, you say, oh, I follow Christ. <laughs> Inclusive love. Emulative love. Extraordinary love. One last one. Perfect love. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The standard for our love is our heavenly father. We are told by Jesus to be perfect in the sense, not told by Jesus to be perfect in the sense of sinless perfection. He is not saying that when he says perfect. That is utterly impossible this side of eternity, right? We all know that quite clearly. Perfect here means complete. Let me give you an illustration. The great baseball player, Willie Mays. Remember the say hey kid? Maybe that's too old for some of you was once called by the commissioner of Major League Baseball the perfect ball player. Willie Mays. Why was he called that? It doesn't mean that Mays never struck out, never dropped a fly ball. The commissioner of baseball meant that Mays was well-rounded. And what he meant by that is this. He could hit, run, catch, steal a base, and he knew the strategy of the game. End of quote. That is how Jesus used the word perfect here. 
We are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in the context of love. And that's the context is love. Inasmuch as we deal lovingly with people, we are well-rounded and complete. When you love your enemies like their heavenly father loves them, then you are perfect. Then you are complete. Then you're well-rounded. Then you are perfect in the sense of the context of the word here. When we do that, we're like God. When we act in love toward another human being, even our enemies. Let me uh, begin to terminate this demanding truth. <laughs> the demands of following Jesus are great. But the grace he gives is greater. He never commands what he does not with the command supply the power to comply. Let me state it again, perhaps differently. Whatever he tells us to do, he will give us the power to pull off. Yes, the demands can be very difficult. You can look at it from the natural perspective. Oh, I, can't, oh, I can't do that. That's, are you kidding me? The believing heart says, yes. Jesus commands it. He demands it. And he'll give me what I need to pull it off. His love will flow through me and I'll be able to love my enemies. I'll be, be able to reflect his own character. When he was on the cross, did he not say, Father, forgive them? He wasn't talking about his friends. Talking about his enemies. I, I, I want to just say something to unbelievers. You're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You may not think it or even consider yourself to be God's enemy, but I want you to know you are. According to God himself. Remember, I read that text from Romans chapter 5. Talked about if while we were yet enemies, talking to believers then who were at one time God's enemies because they were unsaved. Well, that is your status right now. If you're not a Christian. If you refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving him as Lord and Savior in the repentance of your sins, you're God's enemy. You're rejecting his son. You're rejecting the only way of salvation. You're his enemy. God in his mercy has provided the Savior to deliver his enemies from their sin and ultimately from eternal punishment in hell. God in his mercy has provided a means whereby his enemies can avoid hell. Eternal damnation. Boy, that's ma magnificent. The natural response, if we had the opportunity to put people in hell, wouldn't we do it? Yes, you would. Go and tell the truth. Oh, you put your enemies there. People say it all the time. Go there. Do they not? Let's be for real. God 
has provided a means for people to escape his everlasting wrath. All his enemies. He says, come. I'm going to tell you something. If you go to hell, it's your fault. Don't blame God. In fact, you can't. Because he's provided a way. Turn to Christ. We talked about about it. He went to the cross. Paid the penalty for our sins. Died. But the triumphant reality he was raised to indicate, yes, your sins have been paid. You don't have to be my enemy any longer. Come to me. You need to come to Christ. Do it while you can. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God this morning, now this afternoon. We bless your name for the truths came from the holy, pure lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Holy Spirit lives in every true Christian. And we can live out the truths as we walk by the Spirit, yield to the Spirit. We can do everything that you call us to do. You give us the power to pull it off. We thank you for that reality. I pray for those here this morning who are not Christians, that they will see their sin and see the only remedy is Jesus Christ. You call them to yourself. We pray you do that for your glory and praise, both now and forever. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. You've heard uh, what was said about sin, sinners, Christ, and God, and deliverance, you need to come to Christ. This is your opportunity. You're here this morning. Uh, Settle that issue. God will settle accounts with every human being outside of Christ.